After years of getting ripped off by big wireless providers, there's finally a better option. Mint Mobile is the affordable premium wireless service that you buy online, starting at just 15 bucks a month. By cutting out retail stores, Mint Mobile got rid of the crazy overhead costs so that you could score some sweet savings every month. To get your new wireless phone plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash save. That's mintmobile.com slash save. My name is Frankie Faison. I play Deputy Commissioner Burrell on The Wire. It's been a glorious ride, and it continues to be a glorious ride because fans all over the country and the world acknowledge the fact that this was an amazing show, and it's uh, enriched their lives and changed television a great deal. Welcome all, this is Kobe. And this is Dave. And this is The Wire Stripped, and we're watching every episode of HBO's The Wire. And along the way, we're going to be hearing from the cast, the crew, some celebrity fans, and we'll also be hearing from you guys. And without further ado, this is our chat about season one, episode three, The Buys. When you walk through the garden, you gotta watch your back. Well, I beg your pardon. Walk the straight and narrow track. When you walk with Jesus, He's gonna save your soul. Just gotta keep the devil way down in the hole. He got the fire and the fury. All right, so we are um, to set the scene here. We are we're we're. Uh, we drove out to an abandoned uh, train tracks, yep. um, you know, just like the cops do. And we're sitting on the uh, sitting on the trunk of the car. We're knocking back a few uh, few I'm brewskis. <laughs> I've got I've got Jameson. <laughs> You've got your bud, <laughs> which is a horrible drink, mate. To no. be fair, I don't know why you're drinking Budweiser. <laughs> <laughs> I wish that were the case. We're sitting on a park bench drinking sparkling water. <laughs> we are so we would not last long and in the turmeric Baltimore, tea. would we? <laughs> <laughs> so. Episode three, yes, the, the buys, yeah, um, yes. What an episode! Oh, I love this. A lot of stuff happens in this without very dense episode. This yeah, we got a lot to talk about. We have, yeah, guys, set, settle in. So we've broken this down into sort of four storyline sections. Yeah, um, the first one being the picture of Barksdale. Absolutely. So that's a big focus of this episode because they realise. They don't know what he looks like. <laughs> they don't know anything about him. Don't even know what he looks like. And you know, I didn't know what I didn't know what he looked like, even though we'd seen him a couple of times up till now. I still didn't know that was Avon Barksdale, and so <laughs> if I didn't know, then it's it's good to see that the police didn't know as well. Yeah, the police have nothing on him. No, they, they know. So Kima lists off um, what they know about him, and they have a date of birth, and they had a couple of juvenile records. Was yeah, but it? once uh, the juvenile records kind of get cleaned, once he reaches eighteen, so they have right. they really have nothing on him. So. Uh, yeah, so um, the episode, this sort of storyline starts with McNulty asking uh, Polk and Mahone to get off their fat arses and do something. Yep. Uh, they have kind of an enjoyable uh, back and forth uh, where he eventually convinces them to go down to the city housing department and try and find a picture of Barksdale. And I think it's worth pointing out that Polk and Mahone here are the worst cops in the show. They are, <laughs> yeah. they are just like, in. they're looking forward to retirement. They really do not give a flying fuck. No. 
and they just want to get more over time and drink as much as they can uh, whilst whilst doing it. And I think that's really um, important to kind of know <laughs> They kind of get up with, with a big, heavy sigh here, don't they? <laughs> That's actually like, do real police work. Oh, I should go down to the... Oh, take a drive. <laughs> but they come back. They do find a picture of Avon Barksdale. And what, tell me about this picture. <laughs> so, <laughs> some white middle-aged guy. Uh, but there is it, it does make for some good comedy between Kima and... Uh, and Mahone, and McNulty, yeah. yeah. Maybe he is white. <laughs> <laughs> But they seemed so pleased about it when they came out with that picture, didn't they? Paul <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We got a picture of him, and they clearly been got the picture maybe within five minutes of arriving at the office, <laughs> yeah. and then went to a bar and got hammered, yeah. and, and they sat down again. They just filed it, it clocked off, essentially. <laughs> they were like, job done, there he is. Them two made me giggle so much, and the fact that they were so, oh, we've actually got to get out and search. Hello, I am Izzy Lawrence. I'm a podcaster, presenter of the British Museum Membercast, uh, the Zedlist Deadlist podcast, Setis Up, so many podcasts, it's ridiculous. And um, I'm also a stand-up comedian, and I do a bit of work for Radio 4. And I know that feeling. I know, I don't want to go down the library sometimes, I remember as a student. Um, but it is that contrast between, it, it makes you sympathise with McNulty more, the fact that you have these guys who just cannot be bothered. They don't even recognise they've not got the right picture of the guy. They don't care. It's like, we got our photo, we did the minimum requirements, and even that wasn't enough. What a great great shot across the bow of the Baltimore Police Department. This is Andrew Johnston, an academic and podcaster from Maryland. What a great, like, these drunk old fucks don't know what they're doing. There's always going to be, I mean, they're, they're such uh, an indictment of the, the way that it's structured, the way that, that reimbursement compensation is structured in the police department, which is to say you pay people, you know, maybe a decent amount of money, not really. You, you give them a flat wage, not a great one. And then um, they need overtime in order to pay their bills. And then they're all just shooting for pension. Right, because up until probably the '90s, the Baltimore City Police Department had a had a pension plan. Nobody has a pension plan in the states anymore. It doesn't happen. You you, you have a retirement fund, but that's you investing money in the stock market. So good luck with that. Should another 2008 roll its head around in 2019? So um, they're just this these amazing stand-ins for the useless cops of which there are many because they just got into it and you know maybe when they're probably in fact I, when they were younger they were herc and carver they were busting heads they were having beers but they're old now it's i uh i'm gonna go out and bust heads Ugh, i've been working in property for like 10 years i haven't busted a head since <laughs> i was like 29 can i just have a drink and relax for a minute and collect my pension in like four years or something like that. That's always, that. that is always the story. I mean, that's Bunny's story too later on. Just getting that pension. There's, it's like a, it's like a magic spell for people of a certain age in the States. The pension. If I just get the pension, everything will be okay. And this is where Kima lists off what, yeah, that's what I say. Kima lists off what they actually know about him. And one of the things she picks up is that yeah, we know that he he wants to make Golden Gloves, which is a boxing um, award, I guess, isn't it? Yeah. And this is where you see Lester Freeman, who's kind of not 
really paying attention to anything, but his ears prick up at this point. Yeah. And steps into the room and says, what do you mean? How do you know you've got golden gloves? There's a little head tete-a-tete there, and then he he just kind of walks off into the distance. Yeah, grabs his jacket and and goes off and uh, does his Lester Freeman thing. And this is where Lester really comes into the forefront. Absolutely. This is where we realise... Oh, hang on, there's something more to this He's guy. not just a cuddly house cat. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and the moment uh, that he comes back in with that poster and just, like, lands it on the desk. Yeah. Uh, it's so, so badass. And that's something <laughs> that I had remembered uh, from 10 years ago. Yes. I was looking forward to this, to this moment. I remember you saying that before we recorded. I was just so excited. Like, Freeman is just so cool. Um, and just the way he does that and then just walks back to his desk and he has a little knowing look with Kima. Yeah, and Kima, like that's when Kima knows as well. And when Kima knows, then everyone, everyone knows that it's good shit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He's good police. He's good police. Lester is amazing. He's like, he's like, you need, in order to understand McNulty, you need Lester because what Lester is, is basically going, what are you doing? Just calm the fuck down. And you can see he's passionate because, you know, he will look up from his miniature furniture. And he and that's when the, you know something's important when Lester Friedman engages in a conversation by looking up. That is when you know what's being said. Make note. This is going. This is going down. Um, but he's, yeah. I, I really like. I really like his contrast to McNulty. I think them two together they explain each other a lot. So he's sort of been there, done that. Why are you bothering? And McNulty's like, I've got to solve this and then my life will be answered. And Lester's like, no, it won't. Make furniture. He's presented as useless. This is Joe Kiley, friend of the show and podcaster on Scheitgeist. And that's what I love about Lester is that you get the wrong impression from the start. As if he's just phoning it in and he's spending time on his miniatures and polishing them and making more money from that than he is from police work. But it's it's that turning point where effortlessly he goes out to the golden gloves boxing club and pulls back a full life-size photo of avon barksdale when no one else could get a clap eyes on this guy and he just he plays it off like it's not a big thing because it isn't he, he just he is so cool and so in charge i just love him but on that picture i think it's important to know like i say i still didn't know what barksdale looked like because the picture doesn't really look like him I guess uh, he's much younger as well. He's much isn't younger, he? doesn't have his goatee, and it's still, I still wasn't clear to me who Barksdale, <laughs> Avon Barksdale was, <laughs> even though we had this picture. <laughs> You're like, who's this guy, Barksdale, they keep talking about? <laughs> um, so what, the other big uh, storyline is the, uh, I guess it's, well, it's Daniels uh, trying trying to deal with all the politics happening back at the back at police HQ. It's the fallout of the three idiots. Uh, <laughs> yeah, basically. And, yeah, um, Presbaluski pistol whipping and blind, half blinding a guy. He's the only person. It's him against the rest of the world. Basically, at this point, it's him in the deputy commissioner's office. office Rawls is there. Um, Major Valchek is there, and yes. he's fighting his corner hard to keep the detail in check. This is more. This is more of Daniels being this really beleaguered uh, guy. You know, he knows he he wants to get this case done. He yeah. wants to do a good job, but he also wants to get promoted um and he wants to keep everyone happy essentially and he's in an awful position and you you sort of in this scene it's very familiar because if anyone has ever been brought into their boss's office uh when something's gone wrong you know you get that (laughs) horrible sort of uh butterfly feeling in the pit of your stomach and uh he's basically as he says you know um 
if I tell you that I knew about this, yeah, um, then oh. then I look then I look like an idiot. If I tell you I don't didn't know about this, then I look like I don't know what's going on. So yeah. it's really he's in a lose lose situation here. And what's the what's the next kind of storyline we want to talk about in this episode? So the other the other sort of it's almost like a uh, it's almost like a B storyline here, but it's the introduction of Omar. Omar. Omar coming. Yeah. Which we don't hear. I don't know when we first hear that, but it's not in this episode. It comes. It comes soon. And Omar is President Barack Obama's favorite character in The Wire. Oh, really? Yeah. Which <laughs> which makes him. Well, he's he's awesome anyway. You can see right from the start, he's got something going for him. But uh, I was really I was really pleased uh, when I found out that when I found that out because I think Omar and, uh, well if Barack Obama puts his seal of approval to something you know it's good <laughs> Obama <laughs> basically backed he endorsed a, a, a criminal uh, <laughs> a sticker artist yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah and so yeah Omar, we see Omar scoping out the because Omar's on, on the street side we should say he's a sticker artist which means he kind of he's like the Robin Hood kind of character he, he steals from he steals from the, the rich bad guys and gives to himself. Yeah, and gives to himself. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, and you see, we first see him in a van scoping out the kind of area in the pits and seeing out how they how they play their game, how they deal the drugs, where they hold where they hold the drugs, basically. And you can just him and his crew are just sticking back, looking at the layout of things, and then later on they go in and attack when when the pit crew are vulnerable at night. Yeah, and we see. So we see, sort of, we get a sense of Omar and his crew as being quite uh, intelligent. Yep. They're quite professional, like you said. They're, you know, they they observe everything. Uh, they even notice that the police are there, which the uh, nobody else notices. Mm-hmm. Um, but you also get that sort of the vicious side of him. You know, he very quickly he's he he he, he doesn't hesitate to to like basically kneecap that guy. No, at all. With a shotgun. Uh, so he's he's quite vicious, but he's also. It's it's like we were saying in in a, in a previous episode about the Barksdale's crew being very disciplined mm-hmm. and professional and not talking in the car, etc. We see Omar's uh, one of our Omar's crew referring to him by name, and yeah. he basically like says, "What the fuck are you doing?" Yeah, and um, that's that's basically un- Omar's undoing. Uh, once they know, once the, once Barksdale's clan knows it's Omar, then. This is the start of a feud which escalates in horrible ways. <laughs> I can't wait. <laughs> but really, why doesn't Omar put on uh, some balaclavas or something? Well, this is it. I don't know. Omar. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and we'll see further in, in later episodes where Omar is kind of fearless in facing them in broad daylight and things like that. So there is something about him that people that is that makes him untouchable in a way. Yeah, he's almost like a sort of a Wild West Billy the Kid kind of character, yeah. isn't he? Yeah, he's um, an outlaw. And the, the last storyline is when they to, when the police are forced to go down into the pit and, and raid raid things. Yeah. So Daniels has basically been he's getting pressure from from up top mm-hmm. that they want results, um, and so they're told to basically go in and uh, and do a, do a bust, do some do some raids, um, which McNulty is not happy about. Not about, and rightly so. And. I think it's fair to say that he's the only person that stands up against the raids in the in such as in the fact that he didn't he didn't appear. Yeah, he refuses to participate yeah. and there's a great face off with him and Daniels where Daniels again says, you know, you have to go suit up uh, or at least call in sick or something. Don't do this to me basically. <laughs> and McNulty refuses to go. Mm. Um 
But everyone else is happy to go. I think Herc is in his element here. Well, Herc loves it. I'm, I'm <laughs> yeah. not sure Kima's so happy to go, but she is uh, definitely. She's one of one of Daniel's children, basically. So she has to really yeah. go. She respects her lieutenant. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so yeah, we see. Um, they basically go in. They but they they know they already know it's a lost cause. Yep. The stash house has been moved. Yeah. Um, they say there's a there's a news crew. Kima says there's a news crew outside, and they want to see what we got. But she says we ain't got shit. Yep. Uh, so it's been a, it's essentially a complete waste of time. But I think it w- another interesting part of this was when we see Bodhi takes a swing at uh, Mahone. Yes. Uh, and he hits the ground, and then. Carver starts to go to town on him and you think there's a moment where Kima runs over and you think she, she pushes Carver out of the way and you think oh she's she's intervening you yeah, know, yeah. she's a good cop but she but gets stuck she, in she gets stuck in as well <laughs> and you're like oh my god it's like again it's like you were saying previously it's the real it's there's no black and white here no um, even good people like Kima are not above some horrible police brutality so you, you, you would have thought that Kima would be the last person to get get stuck in there and if it goes to show, yeah, there's no, there's no two sides of the coin. No, it's it's really it's nasty and raw. But there's a really funny moment in this. Did you notice when Mahone's on the ground yep. and then Polk runs over and puts a <laughs> cigarette in his mouth? <laughs> I should say at this point, uh, Polk is not anywhere near any of the action, is he? He's just sitting no, there. He's, he's just, just stood the there. Smoking. Now, who's get, so who get, who gets hit? Uh, Mahone gets hit, I think. Yes. Yeah, so uh, and Polk he's on the ground. So Polk is nowhere near the action. No, he didn't even. He <laughs> just yeah. didn't go go near it. He was just having a fag in the background. And he comes up and gives a fag to his mates. He's on the ground. <laughs> um, as a few other things, kind of discussed in this episode because it, it is quite dense. We learn from McNulty's FBI kind of friends that Daniels has got a, a dark history. Yeah. This is so this is the first sort of hinting that there's a, something dirty in Daniels' past yeah. and it sort of adds an extra layer to everything. Um, I genuinely don't remember how that pans out, so I'm, so I'm you, almost... You're interested to find out how, yeah. it, how it works. It's almost fresh to me. But yeah, I think it does... Again, the character's being layered here. Daniels, you see, is being very straight-laced, but this is the first kind of... And a company man, but this is the first kind of time you see that, okay, he's not... He's definitely not what we see. When when he's kind of defending Presbaluski, and when he's telling the guys the uh, the three amigos, I guess at, at the tower block, to how to play the game properly, you kind of see that, that he's doing that to kind of protect them as well as him. But with this kind of dark past, it kind of casts a big shadow as to what his motives are. Of all the characters that by the end of the show is truly uh, heroic in terms of uh, of living living principles and ideals, it's Daniels. Hi, my name is Lance Reddick, and you're listening to The Wire Stripped. But his past, in his past, there's a little dirt. He took some money. <laughs> and it's never, it's never said quite explicitly as that, but it's pretty clear. I mean, you, you appreciate how deeply written and thought about these characters are. Hi, I'm Jonathan Abrams. I'm the author of All the Pieces Matter the inside story of The Wire, and you think Daniels is a is a good guy, but you always see him kind of following the company line and uh, refusing to, not refusing, but, you know, having common sense and not to back up Dominic West as McNulty all the time. And, you know, there's, they never fully explain it, but there's this, you know, past that 
that uh, Burrell can hold against Daniels at some point. And I just love how the wire never completely explains things. Like you, there, there's something there, but you never really know what it is. There's another great comedy moment in that scene as well, where the uh, the FBI guy uh, drives to the wrong side of the You've never done a drive-by before or whatever he calls it. Oh, it's the 5-0. It's 5-0. It's the shades, yo. 5-0. <laughs> <laughs> so um, another scene which is often talked about um, that was in this episode is the, the chess yes. analogy, which I thought personally felt a little forced. <laughs> I think chess analogies in anything... Uh, tend to be a little on the nose. So, can, can you, could you play chess at this point? Uh, can yes, you play chess? Yes. yes, I can. I, I, I was a proper geek. Oh, really? School. No, I okay. guess I still am. <laughs> <laughs> We're here podcasting. <laughs> yeah. So I couldn't. I, did, I didn't know. I didn't actually know how to play chess at that point. Oh, okay. Um, so you were the checkers guy. <laughs> I was the checkers. <laughs> can't play no chess and no checkers board, yo. <laughs> um, so I didn't actually know what they were talking about. I didn't know how the moves. But now I know. The rudiments of, of chess, um, I did find it quite a lot more interesting and insightful. So I think, from a non-chess player's point of view, understanding how he, he gets the point across of the game, quote unquote, to to um, Bodie and to Wallace, I think it's actually quite interesting. But I can see why you say it's laboured. Yeah, it's it's just so sometimes as a metaphor, it's yeah. just too it's too obvious almost. And this is one of the few times I'd ever criticised The Wire. Oh, really? Because, yeah, I just did, I didn't feel like it's like, you know, the king is on top and then the pawns are the first to go. and uh, The pawns you know, get capped like, quick. Yeah, yeah, we get it. <laughs> but I think this is one of the scenes that actually people cite as a, as a highlight of The Wire in terms yeah. of the writing. Um, so it's interesting to see that you, you, went, you found it a bit forced. Yeah, I disagree. You disagree? I disagree with everyone, Kobe. <laughs> <laughs> They're wrong. All right, what about them little bald-headed bitches right there? All right, these right here, these are the pawns. They like the soldiers. They move like this, one space forward only, except when they fight. And it's like, like this. And they like the front lines. They be out in the field. So how do you get to be the king? It ain't like that. See, the king stay the king, all right? Everything stay who he is, except for the pawns. Now, if a pawn made it all the way down to the other dude's side, you get to be queen. And like I said, the queen ain't no bitch. She got all the moves. All right, so if I make it to the other end, I win. If you catch the other dude's king and trap it, then you win. All right, but if I make it to the end, I'm top dog. Nah, yo, it ain't like that, look. Pawns, man, in the game, they get capped quick. They be out the game early. Unless they some smart-ass pawns. Oh, so there's that great scene um, with uh, Bubbles um, yes. picking this... apart the undercover gear. Yes, so Sidna steps in with... Sidna, who's pleased with himself as to being dirty and unkempt. <laughs> yeah. And uh, Kima says to Bubbles, what do you think? And he just sort of tears the whole thing apart. Yeah. It's, it's amazing. So he's like, yeah, you, you've got a wedding ring on. Yeah, uh, you're married to the needle boy. <laughs> yes, <laughs> so many good lines. And the, um, the sort of the, the main detail that uh, that Bubbles tells him about is the dead soldiers. Yes. Which I think was a great phrase. So it's all the uh, the heroin capsules that that are sort of litter the ground in the in the projects. So he's saying that his shoes are too clean and too, uh, the, yeah, they hadn't been scuffed, scuffed up and up. 
Yeah, and you got to have glass in there. You got to have glass in there, and yeah, that's such a tight scene actually. And shows exactly what we're playing with. Shows, yeah, shows how awesome Bubbles is. You don't go down them towers, man. They're gonna check everything. Yo, how about the shoes? I mean, I know you ain't got no problem with the shoes. Fucked up as they are. Let me see the shoes, man. See? You're walking down them alleys of the projects, man. You're stepping on the dead soldiers. Dead soldiers? Yeah, empty vials. You can't walk down the Baltimore streets without that shit cracking underneath your feet. You want to know if a fee for real? Check the bottom of his shoes. Okay? Have him dance on some empties before we go out there. Get us killed. <laughs> it hurt your feelings? A little bit. Would you, would you say that the cops aren't dumb here, but they don't? They just don't know. Well, it's like you said in in episode one. This isn't really their world. Yes. You know, they're they're outsiders. This is Bubbles's world, and yeah. he's their he's their conduit, isn't he? He's their translator almost. Yeah. Season through. And that scene when they're going through Bubbles and Sydney um, and learning how to do it, picking up the details, picking up the hand-to-hand, and that's when we first see Omar as well. well. That's one of the scenes where we see Omar. They do the kind of hand-to-hand and get and buy the drugs. Kima's there taking images, and then they do the quite interesting kind of relay back the information to Kima by standing close enough to the van that she can hit, they can have a conversation <laughs> to each other. Yeah, I love that. But it looks like Bubbles and Sydney are smoking. And it, just chatting to each other. It's really like old school James Bond it kind is, of yeah. stuff, isn't it? <laughs> and then I like Sidner's line. He's like, uh, he's like, oh, you know, should, should we go back in? And then he's like, no, shouldn't we go away and like smoke this stuff up, essentially? Yeah, exactly. You know, you have to look like you're going <laughs> off to do the heroin, I guess. But we start to see, and you know, all the information that they gather there goes up on the board. Yeah. We see finally they have a picture of Barksdale on the board. Yeah. So you can kind of see the the case being fleshed out on the, the board. Jigsaw here. is coming together here. Yeah. It's really, yeah. This uh, this is a super important episode. Uh, one thing, one thing I thought was interesting, uh, which my wife Kathy actually pointed out, was that um, Deang- there's a scene where D'Angelo is kind of schooling. You know, he's he's got he's this mentor figure to to Bodie and, and uh, Wallace, uh, whether they like it or not. <laughs> and he's sort of telling them about you know this this doesn't have to be like this. Mm. We don't have to you know we don't have to murder people. Can't we just do our jobs correctly? And a lot of what he's saying is essentially what McNulty had said to him in the interrogation room. So he's almost sort of parroting McNulty yeah. back, which is quite interesting. You see him being kind of influenced. And I think he takes, uh, D'Angelo takes on board a lot of what he's learning from both in that scene specifically with the cops, but also what uh, his Avon and Stringer Bell later on in the series tell him, kind of cipher down directly to these guys. And this, again, is another indication how of D'Angelo being a smart guy and... Not and doing things differently to what the street level mopes would be <laughs> would be doing exactly, and it's like you've you've said it before. He's the um, we see him starting to think things through, yeah. and encouraging the his crew to think things through. Uh, this is also the first uh, sex scene in the wire. Yeah, yeah, yeah between McNulty and uh, and Rhonda, Rhonda Perlman. Yeah, and this is. It's a relationship that kind of goes off and on through the wire, isn't it? And this relationship, initially we just thought it was, it was cop versus uh, state attorney kind of relationship and fighting, but then you find there's a history there and that becomes part of what drives the detail going forward as well. They they all seem to have history, all these people. Yeah. Like, I like that um, 
you, you know you see that relationship with the, the lawyers and the police and the police with the drug dealers and the drug dealers with the, the drug takers yep. and then back to the police so it's almost like this this beautiful sort of 360 tapestry that that Simon creates and we should say that that he went McNulty went to visit Rhonda Perlman to understand how to get a warrant for a pager yes which is very important yes for the yeah. rest of the season uh, so rather while the rest of them are sort of doing a lame bust a yeah, pointless he, bust McNulty's cracking on with the case and absolutely. he's getting things done there's there's another interesting little bit where McNulty goes to meet uh, is it Fitz his Fitz FBI you, yeah. guy yeah and uh, he's, he's looking for some uh, surveillance gear and uh, Fitz sort of mentions that the FBI are moving away from drugs and they're moving away from the drug war to yeah. focus on the war on terrorism. Yeah, yeah. Um, because this is 2002, obviously. It's just after 9-11. Yeah. Um, and funnily enough, when I read that when David Simon was writing this, originally, it was only a few weeks after 9-11. Um, so he essentially guessed uh, that the FBI would be doing this, which, of course, did happen. When the show was made in 2001 and 2002 is really important because in the FBI plays this role in the show because we became obsessed in the United States with terror, with radical Islam and this impending threat that was supposedly coming at us any day now, we don't know how, we don't know when, that we really forgot about the drug war. We really forgot about it, and we really stopped caring. And the trend from the 80s to 2001 in street-level crime is arrests are going up and incidences of violence are going down. And then 2001 hit, and it goes up a little bit. Because we did actually start really committing more resources and thought to terrorism. But the other byproduct of that, and you see it happen over the course of The Wire, is we started to see the incidences of police-inspired or directed violence increase as funding for more weapons became common. So in Washington, D.C., the Metro Police, the police for the train, the subway, they carry AR-15s which is not, an, it's not technically an assault rifle, but it's basically an assault rifle. Like, the guys who guard the subway have assault rifles. That's how it happened. And so that's getting introduced here with the FBI in season one, that the turn towards terrorism means federal resources are not available to local law enforcement, and so the only option that they come up with is give them more guns. So that was just his yeah, his kind of fourth thoughts. He didn't know this was actually how it was going to play out. And that yeah, it was just intuition. Gonna, okay. Yeah. It'd be interesting to know, because I don't know how the FBI kind of works typically, but uh, we, I guess we find more about that in the in the running of the series, don't we? Yep. Well, well I guess we'll, we'll, we'll leave it there and uh, get back on episode four. Hi, my name is Ben Harrington. I'm from Macclesfield in Cheshire, and my Twitter account is at Driving Talk. Um, my favourite character from season one of The Wire has got to be Stringer Bell. Um, I just love the complex nature of his character. Um, he's obviously part of a massive drug empire, and he has to deal with all of that entails. Um, the more cutting criminal side of it, uh, but he's also a very deep, intelligent character. Um, and the way we see him dealing with both sides of that personality 
is a massive part of Stringer Bell and The Wire. Um, it's obviously played by Idris Elba, who was a relative unknown back then, um, but he pulls off playing an American so well, and I just think that adds to the whole appeal of Stringer Bell. And that was a voicemail that was left on our burner phone. Yes, we have an untraceable burner phone that you too can call and leave us a message. Just head to our Facebook or our Twitter page to get the number. And you can call us from anywhere you are in the world. When you do ring in, please let us know your name, location, your Twitter account, and a short and super sweet message. Cheers, guys. That's episode three wrapped up. And join us next week where we'll be watching season one, episode four, Old Cases. Yes, and please remember to subscribe to us on iTunes and leave us a review. It would be massively appreciated, and we promise we read them all. (laughs) To chat to us if you want to send us a message or let us know how you're getting on with The Wire, head to our Facebook or Twitter or Instagram page, all at The Wire Stripped. Or you can send us an email, burner at thewirestripped.com. Big thank you to all our guests who took the time to chat with us about their love of The Wire. And of course, huge thanks to Tom the third member of the Wirestrip team, our crack producer and editor. We also want to thank Izzy Lawrence, who made our beautiful orange logo and graphics. <laughs> and last but not least, thanks to Sam and Martin from Song by Song Podcast for recording the version of Way Down in the Hole, especially for this show. And that's what you can hear right now. When you walk through the garden, you gotta watch your back. Well, I beg your pardon. Walk the straight and narrow track When you walk with Jesus He's gonna save your soul Just gotta keep the devil Way down in the hole He got the fire and the fury At his command